Good morning. morning. If you have a Bible, turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. While you're turning there in your Bibles, I want to say on behalf of my wife and myself, what a privilege and joy it is to be with you all this morning. Your partnership in the gospel over the last year, year and a half, has been uh, an encouragement to our hearts in many ways. Uh, As I've talked to Steve throughout those times about how you're doing and being able to share how we're doing and having the opportunity to pray together, share the joys and burdens of ministry together. Uh, It's been such an encouragement to us. So it's a joy to be with you all, to see you face to face, uh, to know how to pray for you more directly, and to have the joy of sitting under God's word together. Uh, So let me pray uh, for myself, for us, Uh, then I will read the passage And then we'll jump in together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, God, we thank you for the joy of gathering together on your day. Uh, Lord, the Lord's day. God, as we sit under your word this morning, we pray that you would sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. God, we pray that you would pull away all distractions. Help me to speak clearly. We pray that your text would be clear and powerful and effective in our hearts to grow us in the faith. Lord, if there's any here who don't know you, I pray that you would grant the gift of repentance and faith. Lord, thank you for your word. It's in Christ's name. Amen. Hear the word of the Lord from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. I'll be reading the whole chapter. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy... To the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. So we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is the word of the Lord. Well, growing up in northeast Texas, I was born and raised into a family of die-hard Dallas Cowboys fans. America's team, they just got beat by the Buffalo Bills, which isn't far from here, still America's team. So I was born and raised into a family of die-hard Dallas Cowboys fans. And as a young child, I remember the joys of watching three out of the five Super Bowls they've won. I have fond memories of watching games with my dad, Super Bowl parties, 
I remember how thrilled I was to hear when my youngest brother was named after Tom Landry, one of the Cowboys coaches uh, throughout history. My favorite players growing up, I don't know if you remember them, if you followed football in the 90s when I was a young child, my favorite players growing up were Troy Aikman, Emmett Smith, Michael Irvin. These were the greats. But as great as they were, as great as a team as they were, they wouldn't have been able to achieve the level of greatness that they did without their head coach, Jimmy Johnson. Jimmy Johnson is known as a great coach not only because he knew football, which he did, but because he was able to bring out the best in his players. He was invested in his players. He was not only able to instruct in the fundamentals of the game, but he knew how to motivate and encourage and cheer his players on to victory. And this is true of any coach, right? Maybe you played sports growing up or you've had children who have played sports growing up. It's true of any coach, any good coach. Good coaches are marked not only by a love for the game, not only a knowledge of the game, but a love for the players as well. You know, the Christian life has been compared to an athletic event. I'm sure you could come up with a way that the Christian life is like football. I'm not going to attempt to do that today, but the Apostle Paul tells us clearly that the Christian life is like a race. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9 that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. And to make it to the end of the race successfully, what do we need? Yes, we need to know the fundamentals of how to run. We need to know the basics of the sport, but that in itself is not enough. No, to make it to the end of the race we are going to need encouragement. When doubts come, when weakness creeps in, when fears are stirred mid-race, we need a coach to encourage us not to give up. We need encouragement to persevere to the end. And friends, that's exactly what God has given us in the Apostle Paul in the letter that we'll be looking at today in the letter of 1 Thessalonians. Uh, from the outset, I want to give you some context. We've read the chapter we read Acts 17, which is the sort of historical context of this passage. But I just want to lay out some context for you before we jump into the passage. So Paul, Timothy, and Silvanus, you'll see uh, in 1 Thessalonians, his name's also uh, Silas, another way to say that. So Paul, Timothy, and Silvanus, or Silas, spent about three weeks in Thessalonica. You can read about that again in Acts 17. When they were there, they preached the gospel of Jesus Christ and established a church in the city. And after about three weeks there, they were driven out of the city by a Jewish mob who opposed the gospel and their ministry. Paul, as a father in the faith, was torn away from his spiritual children. And as he continued his missionary journey, he couldn't shake his concern for the church. He had grown in his love for these people. He knew they were in a precarious situation as a new church, new believers amidst persecution and affliction. So what does he do? Well, he can't send an email. He can't Skype in for a call. So he decides to send his faithful companion, Timothy, back to Thessalonica to check in on them to see how they're doing. Paul writes in chapter 3 of this letter, he says this, but now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love 
and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. You hear Paul's heart for these believers, for this new church. So Timothy returns to Paul with a good report that the Thessalonians are standing fast in the Lord. And so in response to this good report, he sits down and writes this letter. So this is what we have in 1 Thessalonians. We have Paul, like a coach, giving encouragement and reminders. If you were to sit down and read the letter in one sitting, which I encourage you to do, maybe do that this afternoon uh, after lunch or, or some other time this week, you'll see that Paul, he's not necessarily giving some new teaching though he does talk about the, the second coming of Christ and sort of corrects some of their understanding or misunderstanding of that. But the thrust of the letter isn't in giving some new doctrine or new practice. Instead, what Paul does again and again and again in this letter is he reminds them of who they are, of what they know, and of the work that God has already done for them to get them to the end. It's a letter of thanksgiving and encouragement. And brothers and sisters, 2,000 years after Paul wrote this letter, we too need to hear this message because all Christians, both now and throughout history, are prone to discouragement, prone to sinful despair, prone to forget what God has done for us, and prone to take our eyes off of what lies before us as God's people. So how does Paul begin this letter of encouragement? We're only going to look at the first chapter today. If you simply scan with me these first 10 verses, you'll notice that Paul structures this chapter around sort of three groupings of people. You see Paul, the first group, the Thessalonians, the second group, and everyone else. If you'll look in the bulletin, you'll see how I've uh, sought to help you understand the structure of, of this first chapter. Notice with me that it's not just structured around these three groups of people. You'll see this more clearly as we go through the text. But it's structured around these people and their knowledge. It's structured around what they know to be true. Paul's aim in this chapter is to encourage the Thessalonians, not by speaking in abstract generalities, but by speaking of realities that are true and concrete and observable. You see, Paul understands... The, the truth that what you know to be true determines how you will live. So Paul here reminds these new believers of what is true in order that they will persevere. Which leads to our main point today. Uh, it's in your bulletin. I'll just read it for you. The main point, I think, of this passage is that the church should take heart. Take heart, church. Be encouraged. God will cause you to persevere to the end, and he will do so through encouragement and reminders of what you know to be true. So let's walk through the text with these three groups in mind. We'll do this by asking three questions. Again, they're in your bulletin. First, we'll consider what does Paul know to be true? We'll see this in verses 1 through the first part of verse 5. Second, what do the Thessalonians know? We'll see this in verses 5 through 7. And lastly, what does everyone else know? 
We'll see that in verses 8 through 10. Brothers and sisters, it's my hope that as we walk through this text, that God will take his word, and by his spirit, he will encourage you and strengthen you in your discipleship to Jesus. So let's dive in. First, what does Paul know? I'm going to read the text again as we go through. As I read it, see if even as I read it, you can discern what it is that Paul knows. Okay? What does Paul know? Starting in verse 1, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So what does Paul know? Well, look with me at verse 4. Paul knows that the Thessalonians have been chosen by God. Paul begins this letter by identifying himself, his travel companions, Timothy and Silas, and the recipients of the letter, which is, as you'll see in verse 1, he writes this to the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In many ways, this is a a typical greeting from Greco-Roman letters in that day. And to be honest, it's one that I usually sort of read over quickly, too quickly. But do you notice how Paul refers to the Thessalonians? He calls them the church, and he says they are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when we hear the word church, what do we think of? We immediately think of Christianity. We think of this. We think of a building, a congregation, think of Christian worship, and that's not at all a bad instinct. But the word church here, when Paul uses it in the Bible, it it means assembly. It means assembly. So Paul points out at the beginning of the letter that the Thessalonians, this new church, is an assembly that's in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What does he mean by that? Well, to put it simply, he means that this church, this new church, this assembly, is an assembly that's under the rule of God. It is an assembly that exists inside the kingdom of God. And now I hope you realize how massive a claim that is. It is no mere greeting. From the outset of this letter, Paul is coaching this new church to understand their identity. He wants them to know who they are in Christ. In the Old Testament, this same word assembly is used to describe Israel. Israel was the assembly in God. They existed under God's rule and reign. They were marked off as God's people. They belonged to him. He was their God and they were his people. But they rebelled against him. They profaned his name among the nations as we read about from Ezekiel 36. They turned and worshipped other gods. They became like all the other nations. And God sent prophets to call them to repentance and to declare that there was coming a day when God would send his Messiah, his anointed one, who would regather his rebellious people Israel under his reign and rule. This was a promise he made to the people of Israel. They would be gathered back into his assembly where they would worship him and be marked off by him. Him 
and be characterized by him. They would bear his name and reflect his character. And so Paul here says, just by the way that he identifies them, Paul says, you Thessalonians are part of that assembly. That's who you are. You Jews and Gentiles have been saved by the grace of God and are part of the new true people of God gathered under the messianic rule and reign of God's promised King Jesus. This is a massive claim. It's meant to encourage them and spur them on. You know what? It's true of you as well, brothers and sisters. Geographically, I found out last night that you are a church located in Middleburg Heights, Ohio. That's where you are located. Many of you live in this area. You gather together as an assembly here in Middleburg Heights. But spiritually, spiritually, you are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is your spiritual address, as it were. This is the identity of all true followers of Jesus. This is true of you as an individual, and this is true of you as a church. Now, I think this begs the question, how does Paul know this to be true? How can he so confidently assert this is true? And how can you, 2,000 years later, know that you belong to the people of God? What does it look like for a church and those who make up the church to live under the rule and reign of Jesus? I think that's what we're going to see answered in the rest of this chapter. So look with me at verses 2 and 3. Paul writes that he knows this is true about the Thessalonians, and he gives thanks to God for this because they are marked by the attributes of God's new creation. God's new creation. What are these attributes? Look at verse 3 with me. Look, look in your Bibles. Verse 3, Paul says they are marked by faith, love, and hope. You see those attributes? These are attributes or traits. They're not static. They're connected to words that are remarkably active. Their faith and love, you see, leads them to work and to labor for God's glory and the good of others. Paul's not talking here about a kind of works-based salvation. No, not at all. This is gospel-motivated obedience. At the bottom of their good works is faith and love for God and for their neighbor. Also notice they, their hope. Their hope leads to steadfastness or endurance. They don't just go about good works for a day or a week and then sort of fizzle out when persecution comes. No, they endure. They are steadfast because of their hope in Jesus Christ. It's their hope in Jesus, particularly in this letter, their hope in his future return that inspires them to persevere in faith and love. So Paul says that a genuine Christian is someone who is marked by faith, love, and hope. And these traits will show themselves in the way we serve God and others. Now this begs another question. Why is Paul so confident that they are marked by faith, love, and hope? How does he know? After all, he had only been with them for three weeks. He had heard of this good report from Timothy. But how does he know? Well, he says in verse 5 that he knows that they've been chosen by God and loved by God because, you see in verse 5, when he came and preached the gospel to them, they didn't receive it just as words. 
It wasn't just an intellectual exercise for them. No, he says the gospel came to them in verse 5 in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Later in chapter 2, he says something similar. He writes in verse 13 of chapter 2, he says, We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. He says this word, this gospel, is at work in you. Friends, isn't it good news that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation? Isn't it good news that God doesn't leave it up to us, to our own willpower, to believe in him? When the gospel was preached in Thessalonica, it came to them in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And isn't it comforting and encouraging and strengthening to know that when we proclaim the gospel to our neighbors and family and families and co-workers, that salvation is not dependent upon us, our eloquence, our ability. You know, I think that one of the reasons we are so fearful to share the gospel, often we're marked by timidity and fear, is because deep down we often believe that the fruit of repentance and faith is somehow dependent on us. We forget that we are simply called to explain the gospel and pray and leave the results to God. We forget that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. But when we read here the Thessalonians, that the word went forth and they received it in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, with power, we ourselves should be strengthened and encouraged to know that when the gospel was preached to us, that it wasn't us who conjured up faith, but God granted that to us as we've already been thinking about and, and singing about and praising God for in our service today. So Paul was confident that these Thessalonians were chosen by God, not because he was some eloquent evangelist who was able to get them to make a decision for Christ, and not because he had received some kind of supernatural vision, but he was confident because he could see clear evidence of God's power at work in them and how they responded to the message and how it had changed their lives. So, practically, how can you know that you're a Christian? How can you know that you're a part of this assembly in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, Paul tells you that you can know that you're a Christian because your life is now marked by the qualities of the kingdom of God, faith, love, and hope. And those attributes are evident. They show themselves in your service to God and perseverance in God. This is the way Paul begins his letter, by telling them that he knows they're chosen by God, he knows they're loved by God. He encourages them by pointing to the way they live, the way they are bearing fruit for God. So by way of application, I want to ask the question, do you have this faith, love, and hope in Jesus that Paul talks about here? Is your life marked by these attributes? Not just on a day-to-day -day basis. Not Don't look at yesterday and if you had a particularly bad day, come to the conclusion, I'm not a Christian. But over, over, over the, the months and the years, is there fruit of the Spirit's work in your life? Are you marked by this faith, love, and hope? Maybe it would be a good 
uh, point of application to this week or in the coming weeks, get together with another member of the church here and simply ask the question, brother, sister, do you see this in me? Is this a part of my life? And humbly listen to them and be encouraged as they say, yes, brother or sister, I see this in your life. I see this in the way you love your, your spouse or love your family members or work in your job or share the gospel. Second, let's follow Paul's example and the way he points out evidence of God's grace in the lives of others. When was the last time you, as a member of this church, went to another member and sought to encourage them? by pointing out a way that they are marked by this kind of faith, love, and hope. As a member of the church, it's your job, your responsibility to do this. It's one of the means by which we persevere to the end. One of the ways that God preserves us to the end is through the encouragement of one another, pointing out evidences of God's grace. And these attributes, these three attributes, faith, love, and hope, Paul has given us a grid by which we can encourage others. I don't know about you, but I regularly need this kind of encouragement. I'm prone to discouragement and prone to wonder, and one of God's greatest gifts to me as a Christian is a wife and other brothers and sisters in my life who point out ways that God's Spirit is at work in me, because I'm prone to forget those. I'm prone not to see those. And, and God, by his grace, brings people around me to remind me of those, those, those fruits of faith and repentance. So this is what God has given us in the church to help us persevere to the end. So this is what Paul knows. He knows the Thessalonians have been chosen by God. Second, second point, what do the Thessalonians know? Look with me more briefly at the second part of verse 5. Second part of verse 5. Paul says, you know, Thessalonians, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. So what, what do the Thessalonians know? The Thessalonians know that Paul's message and ministry is true. They know that Paul's message and ministry is true. When Paul came to Thessalonica, he preached the same message that he preached in every city he entered. Namely, that through faith in Jesus Christ, people whose lives were broken by sin, people who had rebelled against God and were in bondage to sin, could be forgiven, could be set free. He proclaimed that those who were spiritually dead to God could be given new life through faith in a crucified and resurrected Messiah. Now this claim, this claim that, that he preached, this message that he preached would have been striking to Jew and Gentile alike. And again, you can go back to Acts 17 and see what happened when he preached this message. Some believed, some were persuaded and followed them. Others did not. And they responded uh, in violence even and rejecting of this message. But many, many, when he preached the message, many believed. And one of the reasons that they actually took him at his word, one of the reasons they believed what he said was true, is because they saw that the gospel had brought about change in Paul's life. Now to show you this in our text today, our English translations 
do us a little bit of a disservice. And usually I don't, I'm not quick to critique our English translations. We've got wonderful English translations. But if you were to look at this in the original language, uh, the, the, the English Standard Version that I'm looking at here leaves out the important words just as uh, in uh, verse 5. So if you would allow me, I'm going to just paraphrase for you this second part, uh, part of verse 5. Okay. I think this is a good paraphrase. Paul says, We know what kind of people you turned out to be because of the gospel, just as you know what kind of people we turned out to be because of the gospel. There's a, there's a mirroring here. He's saying, we know what kind of people you turned out to be because of your faith in the gospel in the same way, just as you know what kind of people we turned out to be because of the gospel. When Paul came to Thessalonica, his life backed up the words he spoke. Paul had been changed by the gospel on the Damascus Road. He went from a, a persecutor of the church, a hater of Jesus, to an apostle of Christ that preached Jesus with boldness. His faith, love, and hope in Christ were evident not only in the words he spoke, but the manner in which he spoke them and the way he lived his life. He reminds them in chapter 2 of this fact. He says in verse 3 of chapter 2 that his appeal for them to believe the gospel did not come from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. He went about his ministry not as a man-pleaser, but as one who, above all, desired to please God. In verse 5 of chapter 2, he says that he didn't come with words of flattery, nor with a pretext for greed. He didn't make demands on them, but he was gentle among them as a nursing mother who takes care of her children. You see, Paul didn't come to Thessalonica, guns blazing, preaching a message of fire and brimstone, and then, you know, ditch, ditch them and head to the next town. No, he spent some time with them. He shared his life with them. He was kind. He was gentle. His hope in Christ was evident in the way that he lived. And the Thessalonians could see that. And so as a result, Paul tells us the Thessalonians imitated him. And they didn't just imitate him, you see, in verse 6. They became imitators of the Lord as well. And how did they do that? How did they imitate Paul and the Lord? Well, he says that they did that by receiving the gospel message with joy, even in the face of suffering. See that in verse 6. Because the Thessalonians could see that Paul was real, they started imitating him. And then what happened? Well, look at verse 7. They, it says, that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. So verse 7 tells us that the Thessalonians then became models for others to see and believe. They themselves, even as a young church, became models because their lives in Christ were backing up their words about Christ. Friends, ordinarily, God chooses to use our lives, lived in ordinary faithfulness to Christ, to confirm or back up the message that we proclaim. Just as an example or illustration of this, we saw this all the time in Iraq where we've been serving the Lord. In a country that's known war and fighting and disunity and brokenness for so long, Christians who are marked by a kind of love and unity and peace are actually a compelling witness for the good news of Jesus in that land. Often we would have 
local Iraqis who were Muslim come to our worship gatherings. And after the service, we'd be sitting around drinking tea, having snacks, and we would simply ask them what struck them about their service. Many of them, it was their first Christian uh, worship service to ever attend. Many of them came because they were interested uh, or they wanted to learn English, different motivations. Maybe a friend brought them. But almost every time without fail, when we would ask them that question, they would comment on the fact that they could tell we loved one another and that we were committed to one another. They noticed that men and women were able to worship in the same gathering together. They weren't divided, that we called one another brother and sister. They could sense our warmth and friendliness towards them as visitors, as non-Christians. We didn't have any kind of ulterior motives. We genuinely loved them. We genuinely were interested in them. And these men and women would come to our services and Bible studies, and they continued coming, not necessarily at first because they were interested in the gospel. Some of them were. Uh, It was largely because they felt welcome and recognized that we were a loving community. But then what happened was over time, they began to understand what was underneath our community, what created it and sustained it, what undergirded it. And they realized that our love for one another was rooted in our unity in Christ. They began to see the beauty of Christ in the gospel. And it was in this way that many of them became Christians. So friends, when our lives are characterized by faith, love, and hope in Christ, and this faith, love, and hope is attributes that only God can produce, our message about Jesus becomes a powerful force that the Holy Spirit delights to use. But even as we talk about this, the importance of our lives backing up and confirming the message of the gospel and how our lives can be compelling witnesses to the truth of the gospel, we should be reminded that all of us, all of us, from the youngest, newest believer to the oldest, wisest saint, all of us are sinners in great need of this gospel ourselves. This message that we believe and proclaim, we need for Uh, perseverance and preservation we all are capable of sinning in such a way that does damage to the gospel in this community so we need this gospel and we need one another we need prayer we need encouragement to persevere and in our pursuit of holy lives that back up our message we need to take every opportunity to repent and confess our sin to God and to one another We need to encourage one another to be models of the gospel, which means models of humble gospel repentance that leads to bold gospel faith. Let's not be those who put on a a front of fake religiosity, but let's be those who model brokenness over our sin and thankfulness to God for his grace and forgiveness. After all, that's real Christianity. We're not talking about super Christianity uh, that doesn't show any kind of struggle, any kind of weakness, any kind of sin. We're not talking about perfection here. Not outward morality, but it's an inward transformation by God's grace that leads to this kind of faith, love, and hope in Jesus. And friends, this is what the world needs to see most. This is the the compelling witness to those who are seeking satisfaction from the world. So, Paul knew that the Thessalonians were chosen by God. The Thessalonians knew that Paul's message and ministry was real. Third and finally, 
What did everyone else know? What did everyone else know? Look with me at verse 8. Verse 8, Paul writes, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So what did everyone else know? They knew that the gospel of Jesus Christ transforms lives. They knew it, they could see it, and they were talking about it everywhere, this text says. It's clear from this text that the Thessalonians did not just experience the power of the gospel, but they began sharing it everywhere. Verse 8 says, The word of the Lord sounded forth from them, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but their faith had gone uh, had, but their faith had become known everywhere. But the real question is, why, why is this newsworthy? Why 2,000 years later are we reading about these, these Jews and Gentiles who had come to faith in Christ and began sharing that, and it had become known everywhere? Why, why was it newsworthy? Why would people in their day be talking about this group of former pagans and Jews who had become Christians? Well, in their culture and in cultures around the world, including the one we've been living in Iraq, people didn't just change their religion because some preacher showed up. But that's exactly what happened here. These pagans and Jews heard the gospel and they believed it. And now everybody's talking about it. Everybody's talking about these people who had turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. They were talking about how these people were waiting for the Son of God to come from heaven, who was raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers them from the wrath to come. That's what people knew and were reporting. And friends, it's amazing what we have in that short description of what people were talking about is the very good news of Jesus Christ itself. We have the gospel here. We're told right here at the beginning of chapter 1 and verses 9 and 10, we're told about the one true living God and our rebellion against him, our decision to worship idols instead of God. We're told about the coming judgment that such rebellion deserves. But we're also told about Jesus. We're told about the good news of Jesus, Jesus who died on the cross as a sacrificial substitute for sinners. And that God actually raised him from the dead, proving that he had accepted Christ's sacrifice. We're told that we should repent. We should turn away from idols and instead believe that one day Jesus is coming back for everyone who has turned to him. Friends, that's the gospel contained right there in this report that other people are giving about the Thessalonians. It's the gospel that explains how our lives are transformed from the inside out, from lives that were once selfish into lives that display faith, love, and hope in Jesus. Because what God in the gospel does in us is he works a complete change in us. As we read in Ezekiel 36, he reorients our worship He changes our our life orientation, our desires, our affections from serving ourselves, serving idols, to serving the one true and living God. It's a trusting in Christ 
rather than trusting in ourselves. It's serving God rather than serving our own ambitions and our desires. And friends, that doesn't happen unless the Holy Spirit comes with power and conviction and makes it happen. It's his work. When you think about idolatry, he talks about idols here. When you think about idolatry and forsaking idols to serve the one true God, of course people would be talking about that. Of course they would be talking about these people who were serving idols, serving themselves to serving the one true God. Because think about it, idols are all about us. They're oriented around giving us what we want. That's why they're attractive. They're, they're all about me. And uh, why would I, as a, a human being, want to be about anything else besides myself? But to turn from idols then and now to a crucified and risen Savior, that doesn't make any sense at all unless it's true. Unless it's true. Unless Jesus really does change us. Unless he really loves us enough to choose us and then die for us in order to deliver us from the wrath to come. Friends, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I want you to understand that this is what you, we're inviting you to know as Christians. This is what we're inviting you to believe in. Christians live lives that overflow in service to God because we have faith that on the cross, Jesus has already served us beyond imagining. We live lives given in labor of love because we know that God has loved us beyond compare. We live a life that's inspired by hope that we will rise from the dead one day because we know Jesus has already risen. So friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I want to encourage you, if you don't know God in this way, I want to encourage you to consider this gospel. Consider the reality that you are dead in your trespasses and sins. And because of your sin, the wrath of God is upon you. And unless you turn from those idols, turn from your sin and your rebellion against him, God's wrath will be poured out upon you and you will spend eternity in hell. But friends, you are hearing the good news today that Jesus has come. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And through believing in him, you can have eternal life. And your life can be marked by this love and faith and hope. So if you're not a Christian here, I encourage you to talk to uh, any member of this church, talk to one of the elders, talk to the Christian friend who brought you here today, talk to myself after we would love to talk about how this life can be your life by faith in Christ. But this is a, a prayer of thanksgiving, a, a statement of thanksgiving that's directed to Christians. So I want to conclude with a, a short application for you. Brothers and sisters, what do you want everyone talking about when they talk about your church? We're not, Allie and I aren't members of this church. We have come to love this church. But think about the community of people here in Middleburg Heights. What do you want them to, to think about and to talk about when they think about your church? You want them to think about the numerical growth? You want them to talk about uh, maybe one day a building project, a building plan? You want, you want them to talk about how charismatic of a preacher Steve Barbie is? Well, friends, I... Those are all good things, but I hope more than anything, I hope it's this. I hope that you want people talking about the transformation, the change of heart 
the, the attributes of God's new creation that is clearly seen in this church. Don't you want people talking about your faith and love and hope in Christ around Middleburg Heights and around the world when they think about this church? Don't you want people talking about how you've been transformed by the gospel? I hope so. I pray so. And brothers and sisters, pray that you'd be known in that way. Encourage one another and persevere and endure suffering in a way that displays this reality. This is what we want people talking about, and by God's grace, it will be. So together, by the gospel, coach one another, as Paul has coached us here, with the word of God. Remind one another of the good news. And by God's grace, run the race of the Christian life that God has given you to run for his glory and the good of others. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you that you have given us your word. God, that we might know you and be in relationship with you. Thank you for this great salvation that you have wrought in us and the promise that we have that the good work that you've started in us, you will carry on to completion. Lord, I pray that this, this word, this message would uh, be used to encourage and build up your church. And Lord, if there's any here who don't know you, I do pray that you would work in their heart such that they would come to put their trust in you and to turn away from their sin. It's in Christ's name. Amen.